Welcome to the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection, where Colorado trial lawyers share insights from their latest cases. Join me, Keith Buscelli, as we uncover the stories, strategies, and lessons from recent Colorado trials to help you and your clients achieve justice in the courtroom. The pursuit of justice starts now. Well, welcome back, everyone. I am Keith Fuselli, and we are thrilled to host another episode of the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection. And our whole goal of this podcast is to help Colorado trial lawyers learn from people that are in the trenches, in the arena, fighting the battles, what worked, what didn't work, and hopefully get a little bit of inspiration along the way. And with that, I am thrilled to have John Duguay here to talk about an amazing, a truly amazing result on a difficult case in a difficult venue with lots of difficult circumstances. So with that, welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Keith. Thanks so much for having me. And I always like, before we jump in and talk about the case, tell us a little bit about yourself. Have you always known you wanted to be a trial lawyer? No. You know, my origin story, I think I always had, there was some a long history of maybe I want to be a lawyer. And that dates back to my mom used to tell me a story of when I was born that her mom said, John, John James Duguay, that sounds like an attorney's name. And so that, it does. Was, oh, <laughs> that seed was planted early on that maybe this is something that I might be interested in. Never really came to it until I was in undergrad studies. I took a business law class, and I just really connected with the professor, which got me interested in, again, maybe i try this law thing. And then I went to the, an internship at the public defender's office. And oh, oh, great. That spurred trial advocacy as an interest. And I think I always had this idea of sticking up for the little guy and sticking it to the man and being, you know, for the underdog. And so at first that was maybe criminal law is the avenue for me. And I did some work there, but I had some moral questions about some of the people I was representing doing criminal law. And I had the opportunity to, when I moved to Colorado, start at uh, Bacchus and Shanker. And it was kind of a, here's a job that's available to me type of thing. But starting there, I grew a real passion for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from Kyle and Darren and, and their passion for the practice really inspired me and kind of led me down a long road to where I am today. But that was back in 2016 when I first started back, started there. That's great. And I don't know if you know this, but I also worked for Darren and Kyle a long time ago when they were, when they were smaller, but I agree. It was wonderful to have them as mentors, honestly, because they are both very passionate about trying cases the right way. And one of the takeaways to their credit that I carry with me to this day was never skimp on expenses when you're taking a case to trial. It's in for a penny, in for a pound. And that has always stuck with me and been fortunate enough to be able to have the resources to try cases the right way now. So it's amazing how having people with sort of the right attitude on how to go forward with cases can influence your future. And so here you are now. Tell us a little bit about the case that we're here to chat about. Yeah, so the case, this is a case for my client, Paul Daw. And it's a, an interesting case, a tough case that a lot of the issues that we see pop up in cases over and over again were issues in this case. And I came into the case to help try the case about a month before trial. Wow. And so 
immediately wanted to get up to speed to get to know Paul, get to know what the issues were in the case. And it was a collision that happened in Thornton. The at-fault driver was a young girl, 17-year-old, had a car full of kids that she probably should not have had in her car, given the restrictions on her license at the time. But she she turned left in front of Paul. Paul's going straight. She turns left going into a gas station, and it was a big, forceful crash. So thankfully, that was one of the things that we didn't have to deal with in this case. It wasn't a situation of low visible property damage. There was great crash pictures in terms of you could look at the pictures and understand very easily that someone could be hurt in this crash. Okay. So, and, and Paul... He did not go. He was only a few blocks from home. And so he decided to just go home that night and try to go to sleep on his couch. But the next morning woke up in a lot of pain and went to the the emergency room. And he had injuries, pain in his low back, his neck, his shoulder, his knee, had some concussive mild TBI symptoms. And thankfully, most of his injuries resolved with conservative care, with some chiropractic and physical therapy, but the remaining injury was his low back injury. And ultimately, after going through multiple rounds of Cairo, PT, he eventually gets referred to Josh Johnston, who I know many people are familiar with, who may be listening to this, who's a great chiropractor, but also has expertise in injury biomechanics and accident reconstruction. And Dr. Johnston recognized early on, I'll do what I can to help you, but I think this may be surgical. There may not be anything we can do for you. Okay. And then down the road, gets sent to Dr. Jack Rentz for injections. And again, Dr. Rentz echoes the same sentiment of Dr. Johnson, looking at the imaging, hearing what's going on with Paul. Try these injections for you, but I think you may end up needing a surgery. Okay. And he ultimately gets seen by Dr. Jacob Rumley. And Dr. Rumley does some more evaluations and some more testing, but says, ultimately, the only thing I can do for you is a lumbar fusion. And let me, let me jump in. How old was your client when the crash occurred? 38. Wow. Okay. And you mentioned a lot of pre-existing issues. Did your client have prior low back issues? Yes. What we learned is that he had, in high school, a football injury where he had a lumbar, an L4 fracture as a result of that. Wow. And he didn't, okay. he didn't actually know until we're preparing for trial, really, as he's reviewing the expert reports in this case and talking through it with him. Oh, that injury I had in high school led to a, a lumbar fracture. He just knew I hurt my back and I was in a back brace for a day or a few days. But eventually those symptoms subsided. And then so oh, did they catch the they catch the fracture because of subsequent MRIs related to your case. They saw like evidence of a healed fracture and you put two and two together that that occurred in the football injury. That's exactly right. Wow. Um, so, right. All we had in the case was this is an old fracture. We can we see that okay. there's an old fracture. Okay. Um, and but he didn't know prior to having this imaging done in this case. Now, then fast forwarding from the football injury, in the five years before our crash, he had gone to his doctors at Kaiser twice and reported flare-ups of his low back pain. And what he said was, one time back in 2016, I was helping a friend move and this flared up. He went to his doctor, said, this happens every once in a while where it flares up for a couple of days. I'm having a flare-up right now. And the doctors, you know, gave him some pain meds and said, come back and see us again. If it's a problem, 
never came back after that. Um, and then he had another flare up a couple of years later where he ended up asking his doctor for a note to cancel a flight because he was in back pain and didn't want to get on a plane the next day. How long? That, that seems kind of like a big deal. How long before the crash was that note? So that was just about two years before the crash. Wow. And preparing for trial, you know, come to find out from the clients that this is less of an issue of his back bothering him and more of them having some other plan that came up and of looking, <laughs> looking for a way to get out of the but of course. Right. And so we had to be careful with how to present that. You know, we just sort of own what's in the records. Look, I was having a flare up in my back pain, but it was temporary. And then there's no sign of any other treatment. There's about almost an entire two year clean period of no mention of any back pain. But obviously the defense trying to make as big a deal as possible out of this is a pre-existing injury. Reviewing, defense had hired Dr. Saban as their primary yes. expert, who I have some familiarity with. I find him to be pretty reasonable. Same, same. But taking a look, you know, one of the things that Darren taught me early on was you got to really assess what is the expert's opinion. And in this case, Dr. Saban's opinion was not that Paul didn't need surgery. It was I don't see the evidence in the record of what I've reviewed to support Dr. Rumley's recommendation for surgery. And so that immediately got me thinking, okay, what hasn't he reviewed? And what are the things I can point to of maybe you just don't have complete information? Did Saban examine your client? So that's one key thing. Never laid hands on the client. Wow. Never okay. examined him. The other key thing, he never looked at the actual imaging. He only looked at the imaging reports. And so, wow. so very early on in the by cross of Dr. Sabin, I was able to say, look, any if you're now he Sabin now only really does these forensic evaluations. I don't think he's really seeing patients anymore. But talking with him, I heard that I heard that recently that he's retired or he had some medical condition that I think maybe prevents him from doing surgery. I'm not sure if that's accurate. I but think that's right. It doesn't have a, okay. some lack of stability in his hands or something that he's not okay. doing surgeries anymore. But talk with him. Look, if you're going to recommend one of your patients for surgery, what are the things you make sure you do every time? Well, we're going to meet with them. I'm going to assess, you know, how they present, how they describe their symptoms, what they look like and feel like. Of course, I'm going to look at the imaging and, and make my own assessment of the imaging. And so right. I was really able to dissect his starting with what is his opinion? His opinion is I don't have enough information to support the recommendation for surgery. Well, you didn't see the patient and you didn't look at the imaging. And those are two things you would do in every single case where you're going to refer your own patient for surgery. And so could that be the missing information you don't have here? That's the missing link between Dr. Rumley's recommendation for surgery and you saying you don't see it. And he had well, one of the things one of the things I love about that, what I like to do in that situation as well, is point out that these doctors are relying upon the defense to get them the information that they need to make an informed opinion. So when you have this gift that you're given, like it sounds like you were in your case, you turn it on the defense team in terms of them dropping the ball, getting the expert what they need. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. And the other thing with Dr. Sabin is that he he said in his report, he saw no evidence of radiculopathy or any radicular symptoms. And then yes. I, of course, found 20 different references in chiropractic records that he just overlooked of numbness and tingling in the hands. And so I, one by one, 
Is that evidence of radiculopathy? Is that evidence of radiculopathy? And he let me ask you about that. Did he? Sorry to interrupt you, but did he concede that? Because I've gotten sometimes I've gone down this road, and I've had experts try to wiggle out of. Well, yeah, there's numbness and tingling, but that's not true radiculopathy. It needs to be radiating all the way down from the neck down the arm, and if it's not radiating down the arm, et cetera, it's not radiculopathy. So I'm curious whether or not Dr. Sabin, did he just sort of concede that that was radiculopathy or did you approach it more, this record says numbness and tingling, this record says numbness and tingling and leave it at that? So you're right. And he did try to toe that line a little bit to say that's not necessarily radiculopathy, but the way that he, I was able to walk him into there's no evidence of numbness and tingling. And numbness and tingling can be evidence of radiculopathy. And sort of, not that it necessarily was, but I, I set that up to say, these are one of the things you could look for if you're looking for radicular symptoms. And you say there's nothing to support defining any radicular symptoms. And then setting it up that way, going through, okay, here's all these instances of numbness and tingling. Not saying for sure that is radiculopathy, but saying it, it supports um, that there could have been radiculopathy going on at that time. Uh, and he had to concede that. So I had to kind of had to put it in a way where he didn't, wasn't able to wiggle out of it based on that framing. What I love about what you just said is you, you talk about the framing of it. And this is something you thought about in advance. So this was sort of your plan on how to deal with him at trial. Yeah. So I have to give all the credit to Josh Johnston on this. And, and mm. this is one of my um, things that I took from this case. I mean, Josh was an all-star both in how he presented trial and in helping me prepare for trial because okay. he really educated me on the language of, okay, you have to be careful with how you talk about this because he let me know, Saban will try to wiggle out of that, uh, just like you just said. And so mm -hmm. he really helped me prepare for how to ask the questions in a way that Saban couldn't wiggle out of and you know, just helping me understand the science in a way that I could explain it. The other thing that Josh was great he, Josh looked at the imaging and Josh talked to the radiologist and, and all of Sabin and the defense position was what we see on the MRI is just this old fracture and just degeneration of the spine and nothing acute, no acute injury caught that is shown on the imaging. Now, the doctor they're relying on to say that hadn't actually looked at the imaging. And so, you know, they kind of, oh. they set that up for me where it was pretty easy to then put together with Josh that looking closer at the imaging, there was evidence of a disc extrusion is what he called it. And so, wow. and Josh really, you know, helped again, helped me with looking at the imaging of an Oreo where if the disc sort of pushing down and it's causing a herniation, you expect this sort of even extruding or protruding yes. surfaces on the discs there. But there was a more obvious um, extrusion at L4 that Josh was able to colorize the images and get up during his testimony and point that out. Um, and so- Was it one side? Was that, was that extrusion more prominent to one side? It was on the left side, I believe. So, yeah. Okay. There is, just, just so our listeners know, because I've had this come up before, there is peer-reviewed article that talks about how degenerative bulges and- degenerative disc issues tend to be, they're not, they're bilateral. They're not unilateral to one side. So when you have a situation with an extrusion or a protrusion, 
to one side, that can be evidence that it's traumatic in nature versus degenerative. And that brings me to another question I had with your client's prior back injuries. Am I correct in assuming there were no prior MRIs of his lumbar spine from way back when? Correct. Okay. There may have been, but we didn't have it. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so hard to say whether we benefited from there not being prior imaging or not. But so some a couple of the things that I jumping in on this case in the trial prep phases that I learned or that I that sort of solidified these things, these ideas for me, that things I've been told and hear about, but see it all put into practice. And one was you have to think take a step back and think, why are we still right? You know, why Keith Metnick, the why? The power of the why. Why are we right and why are they wrong? And I I'm a big fanboy and a lot of the phrases that he uses and taken from him. I just went to his Art of Outsmarting conference in California, which was great. But I you know, I borrowed a lot. We all sort of stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and you know, we'll get to it more, but I have you to thank and and other contributors to the listserv, you know, to thank for a lot of ideas that I got in this trial. And I think it's really important what you're doing here with this podcast, sort of sharing these ideas and hopefully inspiring people, getting people to think, well, if he did it, you know, maybe I can do it too. Because there's, I can tell you, there's certainly nothing special about me that I was able to do this. And I think that's sort of, it's within anyone's capabilities. And getting back to whys of why, why is this important? Why am I right anyways? Well, and another mitnickism here was the sensible sequence of events. And the client, Paul, went from, okay, he had two mentions of back pain within 20-year period to then 180 visits mentioning his low back pain following this crash. And so, again, another mitnickism, like, is it all just a coincidence that he now has it, went from having back pain once in a while, would flare up when he would lift heavy stuff, but go away in a couple of days, to now back pain that has never gone away, that is always at this five, six out of pain and never getting better. Is that a coincidence or is that because of this big car crash that he was in? And, you know, thinking about that as a, a framing, that's why we're still right. We're still right because forget what the MRI showed. He didn't have this kind of pain. He didn't have this yeah. kind of problem prior to the crash. And he had consistent reports of this pain and these problems after the crash. So you've got a surgical recommendation and the client did not do the surgery. Is that right? Yes. And so how did you go about for our listeners? How did you price out that future surgery? And why was it that your client did not get the surgery? So we had Acumed. Okay. Yes. Yep. And they priced out the surgery for us and they're great. Highly recommend them. And the reason the client didn't get the surgery is that it's a complicated, it was a multi-level ACDF fusion that was going to involve two separate operations going in back and front. There's a lot of potential complications. If you you, know, you talk to the doctors, talk to the clients who've had them, you know, a lot of people either regret getting it or then need a subsequent additional fusion at an adjacent level. And so I was able to get testimony from Sabin and from um, ah. Dr. Rumley that the 3% chance per year following a fusion that you're going to need an additional fusion. Also use Sabin to talk about the potential complications from surgery. One of the things was 
sexual dysfunction being a potential consequence. And Paul and his wife were concerned about that. They have a big family. He have four kids, but, you know, they had talked about, yeah, maybe we want to have another kid someday. But those risks of the surgery. But at the end of the day, Paul said, and still says is, look, I think I'm probably going to need this fusion, but I'm going to put it off as long as I can. Because if it's yep. just going to put a solid piece of hardware in my back that's going to make me less mobile, it's going to make it, it's not going to guarantee to fix my pain, and it's going to make it more likely that I'm going to need another surgery. I'm just going to deal with this until the pain is not bearable, and then I will go forward and get the fusion. And so our listeners know, what was the cost as approximately for that lumbar fusion? Just roughly, was it? Two to three hundred, I think three fifty range. Yeah, that's uh, three fifty. Okay. One of the things I heard you say that I just think is brilliant is using the defense expert to constructively cross them to get out stuff that's great for your case. So I heard you talking about how you were using Sabin to talk about the risks of surgery. Tell the listeners a little bit about the idea of using the defense experts to shore up your case. Right. I mean, as much as you can do that, right, it's it's great. And and part of right, one of the issues in the case is if you need the surgery, why haven't you gotten it yet? Yeah. Is he yeah. ever gonna get the surgery? And why should why should we award the cost of a future surgery that you may never get? And so as much as I could, I wanted to build my client's credibility. And so going back to trial prep, one of the things and this is a trial by human, it sort of everyone recommends it, but go spend time with your clients. Go spend time and, and I only had about a month, but I think we spent three, close to three full days in their in the client's home, just hanging out, talking about trial issues, learning about him, his life, what's important to him, and asking these questions of why don't you want to get the surgery, and really trying to understand his perspective. Um, this is what the risks all that, you know, they're telling me I might need another one, it might not work. They're telling me it could come with all of these other potential side effects. It just didn't seem like a good idea for me to just jump into getting this fusion. So I'm hearing you, you know, we all here spend time with your clients, break bread with them, have time. Are you telling these listeners that that bore real fruit for you in this case? 100%. Again, right. Like it's one of those things you hear it all the time. People say it, people say you need to do it, but man, you really need to do it. You know, <laughs> like seriously, what I took from the trial, what I'm thinking about moving forward is some of that stuff that we all do or we know is important to do as you're leading up to trial, how do we incorporate that earlier on in the cases? And so, you know, frankly, I don't spend time with every single client in a pre-suit context, certainly not in their homes. I try to spend a lot of time talking to them and getting to know them. But I think there's there's probably a lot of value to, before you send out a demand letter, go spend some time in the client's home and really learn what their experience is like. Is you'll get some things that you may not have understood or you may not have understood in a way that helps that you can explain it. And so for me, so examples of that here are what we were just talking about, learning about why he was worried about the surgery, then extrapolating that out to, okay, how can I use Dr. Sabin to build his credibility, to say everything that he's saying about being worried about these risks of surgery, that's all valid. These are real risks. And a lot of people don't, there's no and I support people's decision not to rush into a multi-level spinal fusion because it's a risky surgery. And so getting the defense expert to support that, that was huge, obviously. But other things I learned spending time with the client are, you know, you talk about 
working on cars was a real passion for him. And and it's one thing to to have a client say that to you on the phone and say, okay, yeah, you like to work on cars. I pulled up to his house and there's like five cars in the driveway. And and, and what was your venue? I, I know the answer to this. Adams, What's the venue? We're in Adams County. Okay. Uh, yeah. with Judge Seedorf. And I don't know if I mentioned it yet, but Kevin Ripplinger was defense counsel for State Farm in this case. Okay. But so then I saw the garage where he's working on this old Civic, you know, beater that he's, that's been in there for years, that his wife is pissed off at him because it's taken up the spot in the garage where they could be parking their car. And there's something about sitting there with the client and hearing his wife's frustration with him that he still likes to do this, even though it's painful for him. And that that's, you know, instead of watching a soap opera Real Housewives with her at night, he's out there tinkering on the car. Mm. And those were stories that we were then able to have both of them talk about in trial. But that I, for me, what was really important about it is that it just sunk in for me. And I think part of what makes, makes it real, makes it real. Part of what, yeah. you know, it's one thing to, you know, I have a client who likes to dance and, and I, they can't dance anymore and this because of their injuries. It's one th- thing to say that. It's another thing to really understand what dance is for that client, what kind of release they get, what kind of, you know, personal, emotional experience that is on the positive side before the injuries and now having that taken from them. And, you know, we're guiding the jury. I think this is another mitnickism is to appraise the value of what was taken from our clients. Yeah. And, yeah. and how can we do that unless we have a real understanding of what was taken? And that was something that really hit home for me. There's a, another couple anecdotes of, you know, his while we're sitting there, the client's an 18-year-old comes home from school and he's about to go to wrestling practice. And this was the first time that this came up was, I can't go to my son's. Really, I go, but I really can't enjoy my son's wrestling matches anymore because they're these full day thing and sitting on these hard benches. And it used to be something that I like to do, go socialize with the other parents, hang out all day and watch my kid wrestle and feel pride and, and watching what he's doing. But now the whole experience is just a miserable, painful thing where I'm wow. pain can't sit there. Got to get up and stand up and walk around and I don't want to talk to anybody. And, and that was another thing that, again, I didn't have any idea about until his son were sitting there in the, in the kitchen and his son walks in with the wrestling bag. Of, hey, I'm going off to practice. And so it's another anecdote of spending time in the with the client in the client's home you learn these kinds of things that for me that was that was valuable you know that hey, he doesn't even want to go sit at his son's wrestling match like that, that's not even fun for him anymore i'll tell you one of the things that you're inspiring me with right now is that you did all of this within a month because i think we've all been there i know our listeners have we've all got cases we're working on and it seems like it's like the six week time frame is usually when it's like, oh, this case is really going to trial. So I kind of like that you don't have to do it perfect. You just have to do it. So it can be two weeks, three weeks before trial. And you're getting all this super useful information that you're able to implement. It's very inspiring, frankly. Well, thank you. And part, frankly, part of that was what was nice for me. And I think that that's, there's value to having someone come in with a fresh set of eyes a yeah. month, six weeks before trial to just figure out how do we really let the narrative take shape and give a real f- form and structure to our presentation of the case to me, because I've been there in a case that's been my case from the beginning. 
and I'm six weeks before trial and I'm still kicking myself of, you know, is there another deposition I could have taken or could I have refined an expert opinion or gotten another rebuttal opinion and, and thinking about all these things, all these could have, should have, would have. Yeah. And that can cloud, cloud your judgment of, okay, how do we take what we have here and, and shine it up the best we can and, and really and narrow the issues, put it into a cohesive framework that the jury can get behind and understand. And so for me, that was, you know, there was a lot, a lot of freedom to that, to coming to this case late of, look, I'm just, I'm stuck with what we have. I got to try to put it in the best pa- package we can and maybe scrap some things, uh, maybe drop some claims. There was, there's this whole other aside where the client actually had a pituitary tumor that was discovered Whoa. in the imaging they did because of crash-related injuries. But the tumor, there was maybe some thought that the crash could have accelerated the growth of the tumor, impacted the tumor. And so we we had retained Dr. Sonstein to talk about all the injuries in the case, including take a look at the tumor. And he, you know, he basically said, I, I can't get there. It's possible, but I can't get there that it, anything was caused or, or exacerbated by the crash. Sure. And Dr. Sonstein also echoed Dr. Sabin's opinion, and we had retained him as a rebuttal expert in the case uh, prior to my involvement, but he basically said the same thing as Dr. Sabin of, I don't see enough evidence in the record to support Dr. Rumley's recommendation for surgery. Wow. So he put that in a rebuttal report, in an opinion, or are you like, eh, Yeah, so that was, you know, one of the things I came in the case and said, okay, we're not going to call Dr. Sonstein. We're going to drop the pituitary. We're not even going to mention it because too convoluted. It's going to come off as reaching. There might be something there, but we don't have the opinions to support it. And so that was part of what I recommended. And what we did was narrow some of the issues. We didn't discuss the pituitary tumor. We decided not to talk, not to call Dr. Sonstein, but Dr. Sonstein, you wanted to help us the best he could. You know, we retained him. And so we did spend a lot of time prepping with him. And one of the things that he educated me about was that Again, look, I don't have the evidence to support the need for surgery because he talked about the flexion extension x-rays that were done in the case where they are taking motion x-rays. They did not show instability in the spine. And Dr. Sonstein said, I'm not going to do surgery unless there's instability. So I don't agree with Dr. Rumley's decision to do surgery. But Dr. Rumley said there's what we call micro instability here. And micro instability is... It's kind of a made-up term for instability you can't see. It's instability, you know, basically Dr. Rumley's saying, based on what the client's telling me, based on what I'm observing, there must be some instability here, even though it's not showing up on the imaging. And Dr. Rumley and his practice, they have done surgery for people who are in a similar circumstance where the imaging is not showing the micro-instability, but they have evidence that it's there and they've had successful outcomes. But one of the things Dr. Sonstein told me in prep was that, look, I don't see the evidence here, but and I don't usually support the use of discectomies, but this is a situation where I might actually, that's something you could do. If you're going to, there's no other options. He's tried the injections. We all sort of agree he's, his client's stuck with either deal with the pain or surgery, but there aren't really any other options. So Sabin said, Rather than do a multi-level fusion, you could do a discectomy to try to pinpoint which level needs surgery, if so, and 
or narrow down where you're doing the surgery. So he gave me this idea of maybe that's something else that could have been done short of surgery. And prior to trial, Kevin Ripplinger notified us that they were going to call Dr. Sonstein. Again, it was clear to me they were just wanted to put him up there to say, you agree that there's not enough information here to support the recommendation for surgery, um, which this also backfired on them. And there's, I'll get back into that later, but... I'm fascinated by this, them cross-designating Sonstein yeah. and then calling. So did they call Sonstein? Yeah, let me put that on pause for okay. one okay. second. So, um, but basically, only point being, Sonstein gave me this information. Okay, we could do a discectomy here. Okay. Narrow down where we need to do the surgery, try to further identify the problem level. And with that information and prep, I was actually, didn't know this was going to happen, but I got Saban to go there of, oh, we could try a discectomy here. And he sort of explained the whole reasoning behind that. And I, um, in preparing for the defense, the call Sonstein kind of hoped maybe I could get him to talk about that, but didn't end up being able to do that because that wasn't disclosed in his opinions and I didn't call him. But thankfully, I was able to get Saban to go there on his own about the about doing a further, further evaluation. You know, this is another option. And one of the things that, uh, okay, well, let me put a pause on that. So yeah, Ripplinger decides to call Sonstein. And I, I guess, you know, part of caution here is I've had, a, I've had cases where I actually, Dr. Saban thought he was maybe our strongest witness in a case where he was retained yeah. by the defense, but he supported most of the injuries. And I got that case settled. But what I told the defense attorney was my first witness is going to be your doctor that you hired. And I think Ripplinger kind of got excited that he was going to use the doctor that we hired to take down our case. And so he subpoenaed Sonstein to be there. Sonstein did not talk with him ahead of time, was not happy to be subpoenaed. He was subpoenaed for the morning. And then things run late as things can happen during trial. And we're breaking for lunch. And Sonstein still hasn't been called. And he starts cursing out Ripplinger in the hallway. Like, why <laughs> why the F did you subpoena me to be here at nine in the morning? You know, what's going on here? And it just so happened there was a juror in the hallway who heard no way. flip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ripplinger. This young girl who I kind of pegged as kind of a go-along person where she wasn't going to be the leader. So the judge brought her in and we questioned her, is this going to impact you know, how you feel about this testimony or the case, the lawyers. And she said, no, and she wasn't going to talk to any of the other jurors about it. So she ended up staying on the jury, but that was just a little bit of midday excitement there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, and it was clear when he called Sonstein that Sonstein was not happy to be there, a little ownery and, and you know, short with his answers and, it did not, I don't think it went well for Ripplinger. I mean, he maybe sort of got the one thing he wanted, which is you don't, you agree that surgery's not supported here, this recommendation for surgery. But um, at the end of the day, I think it did not go pleasantly for him. It was, you know, pulling teeth just to get that testimony from him and probably not worth it for what he got out of it. And something that the jurors told us afterwards, but this didn't even cross my mind, was that they just, they saw Dr. Sonstein and Dr. Sabin as these sort of old curmudgeons who are no longer really practicing, who are maybe not familiar with these newfangled surgery techniques. And, and 
Dr. Rumley's a young guy who's had military training and had only been practiced for a few years. And the jury just kind of said, he probably knows new stuff and new things that, that these old guys. Like micro instability. Yeah, that right? these, exactly. That these old, <laughs> you know, these old curmudgeons just aren't familiar with the new techniques that they're teaching in school these days. And the jury came up with that on their own. I was like, wow, that's, that's great. Thank you for that. You know, um, and we, we haven't, I mean, we, we probably should have said this earlier, but what was the result? What was the breakdown of your verdict in this case? Yes. So going back for a second, this was a case where at mediation, before I was involved, State Farm didn't made a final offer $50,000. They stat offered $50,000. Okay. What was the policy? 250 policy. We set them up, demanded the limits in the weeks before trial. So we had claims against the driver, the 17-year-old, but also the parents under family car doctrine. There were also, we also had a negligent entrustment claim that was not strong. So that was another recommendation that I made that we withdraw that on the eve of trial defense admitted to family car doctrine. And so they took liability off the table, like on the eve of trial. And I, I didn't make a huge deal of that, but that's something that I hear people talk about in terms of, okay, why are they just admitting it now? So the result, $50,000 comp. The result. The, the final, the verdict, past meds in this case were about, I think, 98000 And the verdict. I mean, they offered fifty on 98 in meds. Thank you, State right. Farm. Right. Another reason I was thankful in this case is, right, they didn't give us a choice. We had to go to trial. And this is the kind of wow. case where if they offered, I started looking at the case and there's some warts when, when I first got involved. There's this prior injury. There's some other issues with the client's treatment, a lot of chiropractic care, and a lot of the things that the defense will tell us to try to get us to think badly yeah. about our cases had me had me wondering, oh, yeah. you know, this maybe this isn't a case we should be going to trial on. Let's see if we can get any more money and get out of it. Yeah, yeah. But thankfully, they didn't put any more money on it, and they forced us to go to trial on it. And at the end of the day, the jury awarded just under $5 million. Oh, my goodness. Excuse me, just under $3.5 million with interest and costs added up to about $5 million. Oh, my goodness. It's just a phenomenal result. And I have found, and I, I don't know if this is true with you as well, but it's the best when they make the decision to go to trial easy. It's the worst when it's like, oh, man, I'm, this is scary. But in this case, it's like you don't have a choice. You go to trial. And uh, what a phenomenal, phenomenal result. Do you know, were you able to get a significant impairment award in, included in that? And and how did you go about, what was it and what kind of tricks can the listeners take from you as to uh, how to get the money in that bucket? Yeah. So the impairment award was $2.5 million. Oh, oh my goodness. I have you to thank a lot for that. <laughs> um, because okay. I, I mean, I'll tell you, I, so I saw in my preparing my closing argument in the months before trial, I saw that you had posted about a verdict you had against Kevin Ripplinger, and you posted both your closing slides and the closing argument in the trial lawyers listserv. And I'm very thankful that you posted those. I saved them both right away. And I looked at the slides and I, I said, oh, I'm going to use something similar to these slides in my, my next closing. But it didn't hit home for me that that case was against Ripplinger until the night before my closing, when I pulled it back up and I'm looking at your slides and I then go read your closing argument and notice I had never paid attention to the defense counsel prior to that 
looking at your closing and slides and I see that's Ripplinger and I see in his closing that you included that he was using a lot of the same language that he ended up using in our trial. I recognize some phrases that he used in the closing argument in your case from the opening in our case where he, he said things like, I want you to use logic and reasoning to give the plaintiff less than what he wants. And so I'm reading this then as I'm preparing my closing. And I just, when I read that, I knew I had him. It was just this feeling of like, <laughs> oh, this is it. Like we got him. Um, and I ran downstairs and I told my wife, I was so excited. I was like jumping up and down. I'm like, right, this is going to be it. We got him. Um, and because I said to her, I was like, this is going to be my, I don't know if this, if this reference will connect with people, but I was like, this is going to be my Eminem and eight mile moment. Like, I'm going to go tell the jury about how Kevin Rick Willinger's real name is Clarence and his parents have a real nice marriage. And if <laughs> I get that. Was, uh, I know what he has to say about me going in. I mean, yeah. it was so powerful for me to feel like I knew what he was going to say before he got up there and said it. So that's why I'm so thankful for you for posting that closing. My wife came and watched and some other people from our firm came and watched the closing. And I, as I'm using that phrase, the logic and reasoning and give the plaintiff less than whatever they're asking for, uh, my wife said, I saw him just taking the pen and like crossing out stuff in his closing. And there was a few really fun getting in the elevator. Kevin and I, he's very easy to work with, professional guy. I think he does a good job. Yeah. Um, I respect him. Pleasant working rapport with him throughout trial. And uh, I got in the elevator the morning of closing. I said, dude, you're so fucked. I just, I, I felt it. I kind of like, I had this feeling like it was going to connect. And you tell during the trial that we had a couple jurors, you never know exactly, but it seemed like we had a couple jurors on our side who were leaders, seemed to be leaders in the, in the box there. And that panned out. But so, and then a few, right before I give the closing, maybe 10, 15 minutes before I put my slides on his desk and I say, Hey, this should look familiar to you. Kelly gave a very similar closing a few months ago. And he goes, oh, God. is this the the house and veil and the, or Hassan Aspen and the Van Gogh painting thing? And I said, it sure is. And so I will get more into that, but that's setting up the impairment. He, and he had a defeated look. He didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah, let's give it, let's give it to the listeners. And I, I'd say that this, the real credit of all this goes back to Kevin Cheney. And I'm sure that he borrowed it from someone else, which is the whole idea of this podcast is we just try to get this information. So why don't you give your interpretation of yeah. the burning house and Aspen analogy for impairment? Right. So the idea is, okay, what is impairment? Getting back to, we're praising the value of what was taken from our client in the way of health. So how do we figure out how much your body, your life is impaired? Well, and, and this is an uncomfortable thing. I said this and it's true. My mom used to always tell me we don't talk about money and it's not a taboo to talk about, but you have to get out in front of it and you have to talk about it. And so getting the jury very, very early on and body are comfortable with the idea of talking about money, talking about a lot of money, all that sets this up. And then what I said is, what is the value? What is the, okay, here's a framework you can use to think about this. I'm not telling you this is the numbers you have to use, but here's an idea. And okay, let's think about what is an unimpaired human body worth? Take a five-year-old who doesn't have any injuries or prior conditions. 
what are they worth? So one, here's a way to think about that. The most expensive house to sell in Colorado last year, and I don't know if this is still true, is $50 million. This big house in Aspen. And I put up the picture of the house. So let's imagine a scenario where there's another fire going on in Aspen somewhere that day. And there's a fire breaks out at this house in Aspen. And inside that house, the two homeowners, they have a five-year-old daughter, and but they get outside the house, right? And they are standing outside. And there's one firefighter who's working, who's able to come to that house because there's another fire going on somewhere in town. And so when the firefighter gets there, the, the wife says, our daughter's inside, you know, go find her. And the husband says, well, this $96 million Van Gogh painting I just purchased is also inside. You know, if you could grab that for me, that'd be great too. So the firefighter goes in the house and gets, it's dark, gets to the room. He sees the Van Gogh on the wall and he's about to grab it off the wall. And then he sees the little girl and the fire's blazing and it's getting hot in there. And he realizes I don't have, I can't, the Van Gogh's big enough, I And the girl, I can't carry them both. And there's not time to take both of them. And so what does he do? Every single time he gets the girl out of there, right? And so the value of human life, it's worth more than that $92 million Van Gogh, right? It's worth more than that $50 million house in Aspen. Who cares if the house burns down? An unimpaired human life, that's one way to look at it. It's worth at at least those things, right? So I took those numbers. And I said, okay, let's take the $50 million house. And then said, okay, our client, Paul Daw, he's not an unimpaired human. He's 38 years old and he had this prior back injury and he had some things going on in his life. So he's, he's not a perfect specimen of health. He's not worth $50 million. He's about halfway through his life. He's got some issues. Yeah. He's worth $25 million. Okay. Love it. And so in terms of the rating, what percentage I just made it, I made it up. Yeah. So Sonstein gave us a 7% impairment reading, but I couldn't get it in. And it was almost better that I didn't because of because they called him and it was beyond the scope of direct. Oh, okay. And no one else had given yep, an yep. impairment rating. Um, and so I just said, you know, it's kind of like, if you believe it, you can say whatever you want. And so I said, yeah, this is a low back injury. This is an injury that impacts every single moment of his day. The spine does not get any rest. Maybe when you're laying down completely in bed, your spine gets a rest. But if you're sitting, standing up, your spine is active every part of your day. And you've heard about the injury to Paul's spine. And I I think that that injury is at least a 10% impairment to his overall quality of health and life. And I just threw the 10% number out there because I thought it was reasonable. I believed it. It seemed fair to me. And again, yeah, I, I presented yeah. it to the jury and like, you can choose a different number. This is just a way to think about it. And so the other testimony. But they gave you that. They gave you 10% of 2.5 so million. Here's the other thing though. So Dr. Sonstein said, and, and Ripplinger did elicit this from him, that what he said was 90% of Paul's post-accident treatment was due to the crash. So, yep. but 50% of his condition was due to his crap injuries from the crash and 50% was due to the prior condition. And so I, in my closing, I, I, I said, look, if Dr. Sonstein says that his ongoing condition is only 50% related to the crash. And so if you want to cut that 
$2.5 million impairment number in half and give us 1.25, yeah. that there's some there's support for that. That makes sense to me, basically. And and so I thought best case scenario, they were going to give us 1.25 for impairment. Wow. The jury came back and gave all of the 2.5. And it was, you know, they were out, the jury was out for maybe an hour, which is scary. scary. And, you know, part of me was like, it's either we're going to lose or they're going <laughs> to yeah. give me what I asked for. And I thought best case scenario was we're going to get the 1.25 million plus our past medical and future, the future surgery. But yeah. they, the be great result. jury said to us, though, you know, we thought about it. There was the two older ladies on the, on the jury. One of them, one of the two I thought would be the four person was, and they both said afterwards, you know, he's not thinking about, he's going to have grandkids one day. He's not thinking about how he's not going to be able to pick up his grandkids. Oh I can't imagine. I got these two little bundles of joy and they were doing golden rule without on their own, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they said, we just thought the 2.5 number was appropriate. Wow. That is unbelievable. Uh, how many days did the trial take? Five, really four and a half. And uh, Judge Seerdorf, any uh, comments on Judge Seerdorf? I thought he was reasonable. I thought he was he was great. You right. know, the, got a little mad at me at one point. I was trying to ask Sonstein about testimony that Saban had given about other about his opinions in the case, and trying to walk. There's a sequestration order, and I'm trying to ask him about uh, testimony that was given prior. And so I got snapped at by the judge. You know, once there for that. But, you know, then he's completely pleasant. I think the jury liked him. I think. I think most people who have tried cases or have been in front of him will agree. I think he's now not only doing criminal dockets, a loss for us not having him on the civil bench anymore. The one thing that we have not talked about is uh, voir dire. Did you have a specific strategy that you employed in voir dire or specific issues that you wanted to address? Yes. And so... And how and how much time did you get? Did you get like 30 minutes, 20 minutes? We got 30. Okay. And so I've done a couple of voir dires before, but not... Uh, many and and what I learned trying to incorporate you know Mitnick's cherry pie example and make yeah. that into your own example and Nick has a really long I think effective way to get jurors for cause but what I learned after trying to do that in a couple trials is there's really no time for that in 20 minutes like you may be able to get a juror to for cause if they present themselves quickly and you can follow up on that, but go through this drawn out approach of one by one, trying to lock a juror into a cause challenge. I didn't have any success with that. The first couple trials where I tried that. And so what I tried to do here was really just get the jury talking. I gave a real quick, this might not be the case for you explaining that concept. And I did use burden of proof and coupled that with money for pain and talking about, okay, okay we're, to be frank, I didn't feel as good about the case in jury selection as I did by the time I was giving closing. And so that's nice. So in, I mean, it's nice to have that happen. Yeah. I've had the opposite many right. times. I feel like. Right. <laughs> right. And so I think I said hundreds of thousands of dollars in jury selection. Okay. We're going to be asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, okay. okay. And does anyone, you know, how do, how do people feel about the burden of proof in relation to an award of hundreds of thousands of dollars? And it was a time when the Broncos were really struggling. I think you, I may have seen this in your closing about crossing the 50-yard line. And I added a little clip of like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the Broncos just had to cross the 50-yard line in order to get a touchdown? 
it's got the jury laughing a little bit on that. But, you know, so there was my idea for jury selection was to get the people talking as quickly as possible. And they yeah. did, and they did the work for us in a lot of ways. There was one juror. So there was a couple who took polar opposite stances, one saying, this lady, she told a story about some a former roommate who basically made up being involved in a crash in order to try to file a lawsuit about how she thinks plaintiff's lawyers are shysty because of this. And she could never yeah. be involved in a case like this because that turned her off completely. Now, hearing her talk, like she was very over the top. It struck me as something like she was sophisticated enough to try to use this as a way to not be on the jury. And maybe she didn't really have these types of feelings as strongly as she was leading on. She was someone that we were able to get off her cause. And I almost hesitated, like, maybe I don't want her off because I kind of thought she was exaggerating how much she hated plaintiffs and plaintiffs' cases. But her, she was useful to just get the discussion going. Does anyone else still have feelings like that? And then, you know, someone made a comment about ambulance chasers. And I, I mean, I, I just said, do you think I'm an ambulance chaser? You know, does anyone think I'm an ambulance chaser that Mr. Daw shouldn't have his day in court because I might be an ambulance chaser or something, you know, and just sort of own um, that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. At them all to say, no, no, you seem reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> you seem fine. Like, so that was nice that they didn't say, yeah, you're a scumbag. Uh, but, and, and there was another near person who talked about the opposite experience of being in a crash and feeling like they got really screwed over by the insurance company and uh, negotiating with the insurance company. So that, that, was nice to have that insurance discussion unprompted go on during jury selection That's as great. well. And so, I mean, those were, I just, once that started going, I just tried to let that go and get as much information as I could out of that. The one thing, you know, strategically, when it came down to picking the jury, what I did and I thanked myself for later was looking at the panel and there was someone who I thought about striking who wasn't bad. It was just sort of, this is our last one. Who do we strike? And then thinking forward to who I thought Ripplinger was going to strike, looking at who that next person in line was going to be. So the person wasn't on the panel right then, but depending on who Ripplinger decided to strike would have been. Yes, yes. And so that person, I like identified them as, oh, that could be a case-killing person who really doesn't like okay, the case. Okay. And so even though yeah, yeah. they potentially weren't going to be on the panel, I decided to strike that person anyways, and that ended up being... I was obviously it worked out, but yeah, yeah brilliant. It ended up yeah. being brilliant. <laughs> well, we uh, we've come to the end of our time here. Thank you so much for being on the program and inspiring us. Is there one sort of takeaway? I mean, what I took away is just the importance of meeting with the clients. But is there one sort of you know this really? If that's what it is, great. If there's something else, what can the listeners take from your amazing experience in Adams County? I guess you touched on this. I think, yeah, meeting with the client, getting to know the client. I mean, Paul, since, has become a great, he's become a friend. I've gone to dinner with him and his wife a few times with my wife. I mean, that's, wow. that's not going to happen in every case, but I think Paul will be a lifelong friend for me now. And that, that's a great value to me beyond just the case. But I think meeting with the clients helps me, and I, I think it can help anyone connect to why we're doing what we're doing, why you're why you're making that call to the adjuster, sending that letter, doing what might feel like a tedious, monotonous task, connecting to the whys of, of that. It's a lot easier to do that when you really understand and know your client's struggle. And the other thing I'll just say is, this is my first closing argument in a jury trial. 
Wow. And oh my goodness. Yeah. And what I mean to say by that is says this too, like it doesn't need to be pretty. It's not gonna be pretty your first few times in trial. You're gonna be nervous. But you know, when you get back to this, I'm I'm on the right side. This is why why I'm right, even though he had a prior injury, even though these other things that they try to muddy the waters, right? If you can bring it back to, okay, I have a righteous cause and I have a framework and a narrative that I put together before we got to trial that I know makes sense to me and I think will make sense to the jury. The prettiness, the extraneous factors, the presentation skills, all the things that we want to be polished to impress other lawyers, it doesn't matter as much as connecting to the client, connecting to the cause, the purpose, and that I think that bleeds through. The jury can see that. The jury can feel that. And you can go and get great results, even if you don't have a perfect case, even if you don't have the most polished presentation. Well, what an inspiring, inspiring interview. And it's been so fun to hear this. And, you know, one of the other takeaways that I took from this is these cases happen all the time in Denver, if you think about it. It, these types of cases, we all have them in our inventory of cases. And kudos to you for jumping in the arena and going to bat. What an amazing result. And thank you so much for appearing on the show. Thanks again, Keith. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And we hope you continue to enjoy us. And hopefully this podcast is of value. That's the main thing is hopefully those of you who are listening are getting something out of it because I'll continue to do it as long as I continue to get stuff out of it, which every single time I've been able to talk with folks, not only is the inspiration there, but the strategy and the actual how to go into battle and when, I feel like I get a little better every single day. So thank you again, John, for appearing and thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration from today's courtroom warriors. And thank you for being in the arena. Make sure to subscribe and join us next time as we continue to dissect real cases and learn from Colorado's top trial lawyers. Our mission is to empower our legal community, helping us to become better trial lawyers to effectively represent our clients. Keep your connection to Colorado's best trial lawyers alive at www.thectlc.com.